so just to kind of set this up a little bit, uh, the reason why genuine Christians who love the Bible deeply have different views on this topic of exactly how the return of Christ is going to happen and the timing and those kinds of things. The reason is not because the Bible crystal clear in a verse says ex exactly what's going to happen in all the details and you just either believe in the Bible or you don't. It's not like that. This is one of those issues where you have to make inferences from challenging texts. You have to kind of put them together. How do these texts best inform each other? How do you put them together to come to conclusions? And that's why people we love greatly are going to be on different sides of this issue. So, that should give us all humility when we approach this. It's not like the virgin birth. The text of the Bible says she was a virgin when she gave birth. There's no debate. You either believe the Bible or you don't, right? When the Bible says Jesus is coming back to judge the world, you either believe the Bible or you don't. It's not a debate. Christians believe it. Non-Christians obviously wouldn't probably believe that. But with this issue, it's how you harmonize literally dozens of challenging texts. And this is why, just to mention two names of guys we mention a lot, John MacArthur and John Piper. Okay, for the last month, we've been agreeing largely with MacArthur, disagreeing with Piper. It's about to flip-flop for the next few weeks. Okay, so this is nothing about one person being superior to another person or anything like that. These are some of our favorite Bible teachers who are just trying our best to figure out how to put these passages together and best make sense out of them biblically. That being said, I don't think, and hear me out on this, I don't think that that means that you cannot have confidence of your own view on this. I, I, humility and confidence are not opposites, okay? If you study this for a long time and you come to conclusions that you really do based on, on the, what you think is a better reading of the text, you don't treat people like they're less than you because they disagree. That's ridiculous. But it's not, it is not automatic arrogance to say on a secondary issue, I really do believe this is what Scripture teaches, and I really want to encourage other people to believe it as well. So um, all that should be in place. Confidence is not arrogance, necessarily. This issue is debatable in many ways, so it takes patience and a lot of work to try to put together challenging things. And um, without further ado, Greg, what are we discussing today? Oh. <laughs> Oh, good. Yeah, great. Yeah, I, I love how you did that, Mark. That's, that's great. I took the I'll, easy part. Uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be the bad guy to uh, label the issues. Um, no, when we think about the return of Christ, like Mark said, there's, there's agreement on the biggest, most important yes. things, that Jesus is coming back visibly, bodily, physically, um, in power, in glory, to judge, to, um, you know, establish his kingdom. Um, and that's something you can't be a Christian if you deny that. It's just not possible. Um, now, there are some other issues, lesser issues, in terms of, of weightiness, not unimportant by any stretch, but still not as significant as that, whereby Christians disagree. Um, and some of it has to do what happens up till the return of Christ, this, this public power and glory second coming. Um, that's where a lot of the debate comes down. Um, and so that's what we want to spend some time thinking through is, um, in the details leading up to Christ's return, what do we need to think about that time period? Because there is significant disagreement um, on that. And, you know, one popular view, Jerry asked me if I'd read Left Behind. Um, I did. Um, and I've, I've since been persuaded of a different view um, than what I held when I read that. Um, but the Left Behind series, most of y'all know what we're talking about. They even made a movie with Nicolas Cage. I hope you don't ever watch it. Um, <laughs> it, it was not representative of the books very well um, or of, of the position very well. Um, and so, but the position that was kind of popularly um, portrayed in Left Behind and held by a number of scholars like John MacArthur um, is called the pre-tribulation rapture, meaning 
Um, God's plan uh, was originally for Israel. Um, Israel rejected Jesus. Um, and so God's plan with Israel was in a kind of, in a sense, put on pause. And so now you have the church age, um, God going to the, the gospel, going to the Gentiles, God doing a work in the Gentiles. But when that Gentile time is up, God's plan with Israel will restart in a sense. Um, and the church will be removed, raptured out, taken out of the way. And God's plan with Israel uh, will re, re, restart. And um, the final seven years before the return of Christ, the great tribulation um, is what will take place. Israel will once again kind of be the center of things. Um, you'll see the emergence of the Antichrist, um, make a, you know, a treaty with Israel for three and a half years, break it. Um, and then it really gets bad after that. Uh, there will be, um, you know, a lot of Jews will come to Christ. They'll be winning the world to faith. Um, and that, and then at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus returns in power and glory, establishes a thousand-year, a literal thousand-year kingdom um, that is centered in Jerusalem, where Jesus will reign on a literal physical throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. It'll be a primarily Jewish kingdom, but the Gentiles will have a role to play as well. That's the pre-tribulation view. It's, it's very common. It's um, I, I will say this, it's not often represented as fairly as it should be in a lot of common literature. Um, there's um, folks like MacArthur and the guy, the, a lot of the people at the Master Seminary um, rightly are a little perturbed at how pre-tribulationalism is often pictured in popular society like Left Behind and stuff like that. Um, but that's that view, and that's the view we're actually going to be disagreeing with. Um, and, you know, I was telling Mark, it comes to this issue, like, I want to talk about this because it's, it's one of those things for me personally. I love, like, hermeneutics. I love how it ties into eschatology. But at the same time, I just want to go crawl up in a corner and hide um, because when every time I talk about this, like, and I don't know why this is, but I picture John MacArthur, people that I've known who hold to that view, ready to ask questions. What about this? What about this? So, so it's like, I come to this with fear and trembling. Um, because people that I love and respect greatly, I disagree with them on this. Um, and I, I hope as we go through this, you'll see why. And I, my prayer is we will remain respectful throughout because this is really is an in-house debate Absolutely. amongst believers. This is not something to have a huge division over. This is not something to part ways over. This is something that men and women who love the Word of God are absolutely committed to it can, can liter, you know, legitimately see things differently and still worship side by side. Yeah, okay? it, it, just as an example, R.C. Sproul, and we actually wouldn't agree entirely with Sproul either on this issue, but mm -hmm. Sproul and MacArthur were like best friends, and they disagreed on this issue passionately. And so it, you, you can absolutely maintain wonderful Christian friendship and be members of the same church and, and be unified in that because we agree on the most important aspects of what we are discussing. But j just, so maybe perhaps, I don't know all of your backgrounds, but my guess is at least half of us, if not more, have grown up with more of the left behind background. So it's probably more, it's probably more what we're used to. It may even be the only view we've really heard Maybe some of us have heard others, but um, j just I, I would ask for a, maybe an openness as we think through these texts, and we'll probably spend two weeks on this topic. Mm -hmm. We're not meeting, by the way, for Sunday school next Sunday. So the Sunday before Thanksgiving, we are not having Sunday school on the 21st. Then we'll be back the Sunday, Lord willing, after Thanksgiving. We'll pick back up and try to try to finish this uh, on a second Sunday, this topic. And then we'll get to the millennium. So there's another, it, it, the millennium and the return are intimately connected because there's connections across these two things. So it's all about what's in the future, 
the timing and how all these things sort of, sort of uh, go together. Let me, let me add one thing. And again, I'm trying to balance conviction with humility because it's, it's an interesting, interesting balancing act here. But just something to think about. Um, in the history of the church, um, when you look at the early church fathers, when you look through the, the, the Middle Ages, when you look at the reformers, when you look at the Puritans, when you look all the way up into the 1700s, um, I, I want to say either no one or virtually no one taught a pre-tribulation rapture. That, that may surprise some of you because most of us think today that that's the only view. That's the view. If you're Baptist, that's the view you have. It's the left behind view. The left behind view or the, the, the pre-tribulation rapture view, the secret rapture, that Jesus will come back and secretly snatch his saints and then there's seven years of tribulation then he comes again to judge the world. That view was explicitly taught by no movement in the church until the 1830s. That's true. John Nelson Darby is the first popularizer uh, on a public level of the view of the pre-tribulation rapture. So I, I'm not kidding you. You, uh, Greg and I have debated, some, and I've actually read someone's PhD thesis trying to give arguments about who believed yeah. what in the early church fathers. But at the end of the day, there is no clear example, no, no explicit movement or example of pre-trib rapture before 1830, which can we at least at the very least say that should make us give us a little pause before we embrace the view? Like, in other words, people who read their Bibles for 1830 years Virtually none, if not none of them, came to the conclusion that Jesus would come back two more times, once secretly and once publicly. The, conclu the conclusion of all Christians, I'm talking the entire church for almost 2,000 years, was that Jesus would come back once. There would be one final return, that the rapture that we talk about, us being caught up to the Lord, is the same event as Jesus coming in judgment to judge the world. That those two events are one return. So the, the big question that we're going to be asking, if you can think of this table as like uh, time going forward from where y'all are sitting, is this the right way going forward? Uh, so it, the big debate is, let's say like uh, this is sometime in the future right here. This is the secret rapture right? And then there's seven years of tribulation. At the end of the table, Jesus comes back publicly to judge the world. Is that what the Bible teaches? Two distinct future comings of Christ? Or does it teach one single event? Can the details of what's described here be harmonized with the details of what's described there to describe one event, which is, again, I say it humbly, it was the universal view of the church until 1830, when, uh, when the founder of the Plymouth Brethren uh, Church, John Nelson Darby, uh, was a popular preacher, he began teaching the secret rapture before the tribulation in the 1830s. And his disciples influenced a guy named C.I. Schofield. And around the turn of the century, uh, around 1900-ish, C.I. Schofield wrote these Schofield Reference Bible. Have you heard of this? You, that, that was a huge Bible, sold I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of copies. And what you had was that Bible influenced an entire generation around the turn of the 1900s. So if it gets into a study Bible, it gets everywhere, right? This is why study Bibles are so significant. What they teach, it can be very important. So a whole generation bought into this idea of the pre-tribulation rapture. And then you had a, a seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary is founded out of that, which taught the pre-trib rapture. So Dallas to this very day teaches the pre-trib rapture. And then now you have uh, today like Master's Theological Seminary, which is a wonderful seminary. I love, I think Master's is one of the best seminaries on earth, but they teach a very strong pre-trib rapture position. I think all their professors uh, teach, teach that view. So uh, if you did not have the Schofield Reference Bible, I don't know if we would have Dallas. I don't know if we would have that as the popular view today amongst Southern Baptists, but uh, be that as it may, the last hundred years, it has been the dominant view amongst Southern Baptists. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say too, like one of the things that's done, you know, regardless of how, you know, whether or not the newness of it affects you, is what the dispensational perspective has done is it's made us go back to Scripture and really reevaluate things, um, whether you agree with it or not. Um, one of the things I appreciate most about uh, folks of the pre-trib perspective is they are rigorously biblical. 
Um, and so if, if we're going to disagree, we have to be rigorously biblical as well and not just rely on a system like as used to be covenant theology and stuff like that, which had a, which, you know, there's a lot of merit in that, but a lot of conclusions that were just accepted. And it's like, no, let's go back to the text and let's be willing to submit all of our conclusions to what scripture says. And if we got to reevaluate things, we got to reevaluate things. Um, we shouldn't be afraid of the Bible in that sense. It's a good thing if Scripture leads us to change our views, but it's got to be Scripture that does it. Um, and so one of the things that comes into this, because um, Mark's saying, you know, the, the typical position of the church throughout history has been more of what we would call a post-tribulational view. Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. Um, it's one coming. Um, but another thing that goes into this, um, and I don't know how long we're going to spend on this, kind of depends on how, on how, how the discussion goes, but we don't just come, none of us do, none of us come to say like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is the big pre-tribulational, pre-tribulation rapture text. Um, none of us come to that text uh, completely uh, clear of other thoughts and conclusions. Okay, like this is one of the most important things. We all come to the New Testament with presuppositions or assumptions about what the New Testament's already going to say. And we have to acknowledge that. None of us are exempt from that. We, re, we come to 1 Thessalonians 4 with expectations uh, of what it's going to say and what it can't say. And so one of, one of the things that matters in this debate, one of the, the, biggest, um, the biggest points, I think, of disagreement is something, I'll go back to a sermon John MacArthur gave a number of years ago on this very issue. He talked about if you get Israel right, you get so much other stuff right. And he's not wrong in saying that. And so we have to understand what is God's, what is the nature of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament? What is the expectation? How is that expectation met? How are those promises actually fulfilled when the New Testament comes? Can I jump in yeah, right there, Greg? Ahead, so, so on that point, if, if you're sitting there, like, and I used to be in this exact position. So if you're sitting here, I understand this thought that may be going through your mind. We're, we're dedicating two Sunday schools to a seven-year debate, a debate about seven years in the future. So like, who cares? I mean, okay, if Jesus comes back before the seven years or if he comes back after the seven years, first of all, the chances that we'll be around for it are not necessarily super strong. I mean, we might, but we might not be. Why are we debating something that we might even, we might even live to see it? And, and it's seven years. I mean, come on, whether we're right or wrong, it's seven years. Okay, I, I grant you that, that seven years, I, I understand. You don't want to maybe spend your whole life debating seven years. But here's what Greg's getting at, and I agree with all my heart. And I think both sides would agree with this. Mm-hmm. It's not just about seven years. How you interpret pre-tribulation return or an after-tribulation, a post-tribulation return, whichever those two views affects, I'm not trying to be dramatic, it affects how you interpret about 20% of the Old Testament. So in other words, the, the promises made to Israel and the promises made to God's people, how you see those fulfilled in the New Testament is going to affect how you view this tribulation period. So this, this is, a, again, saying it from, from the position that I'm convinced of, I do believe that if you can weaken the position of the pre-tribulation rapture view, I'm using a lot of big words here, okay? If, if, I, if we can weaken the position of the, you know, Jesus comes back and snatches us before the seven years, if I can weaken your view of that position, then I think I've actually done a great deal to weaken the dispensational system in general. 
-hmm. Because the dispensational system that has a strong division between Israel and the church interprets about 20% of the prophecies in the Bible differently than at least we on this panel would would interpret them. So, yes, it's just seven years. And, you know, you could debate that. But it affects how you interpret about 20% at least. Some people say 30% of your Bible. But so I I think this really matters because of its broader implications for how you understand, especially prophecies to Israel in the Old Testament. Mark, could you explain uh, dispensational for the group? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in ten words or less. Yeah. Oh, um, so, the, the, in the Old Testament, there are many promises made to Israel as God's people, and he, there's promises that there will be a new Jerusalem, a renewed heavens and earth, that, that God will gather His people from the Babylonian captivity. He'll bring them together in Jerusalem. He'll put His He'll put David, the Messiah, over them to reign. God will be with them. There'll be a renewal of things. The, the question is, are those promises going to be fulfilled to literal ethnic Israel? in a future thousand-year reign of Christ called the millennium that will take place all after what we're discussing today? Or do we see those promises to Israel fulfilled, first of all, in Jesus, the true Israel, secondarily in the true offspring of Abraham, which is all true believers who are Israel in Christ, right? We're not Israel ethnically. Jesus was. He was the true Israelite, the only righteous Israelite. We are united to Christ, and therefore we are considered, counted, the offspring of Abraham in Christ. Are we, really, are we literally ethnically Jewish? Not most of us, but we are counted Abraham's children in Christ because Christ is true Israel. He's the true son of Abraham. If we are united to Christ, we are then true Israel in Christ. And if that's true, then there's a way in which the promises to Israel are fulfilled first in Jesus secondarily in the church, God's true people in Christ. And then there's also a sense in which I believe there will be a revival amongst ethnic Jews before the return of Christ. I believe Romans 11 teaches that ethnic Jews will be converted in a large proportion right preceding the return of Christ, right before his one, I believe his one return, that there'll be a mass conversion of Jewish people. And Paul says all Israel will be saved. I think that means the majority of ethnic Jews will be saved. And so that whether Jew or Greek, we will be one in Christ. We are true Israel in Christ. And the promises made to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus uh, and his people, ultimately, which includes uh, people like us who are not ethnically uh, Jewish. I'll put a little more foundation under that. Yeah. Um, when you think, um, we're talking about kind of two whole Bible systems of how to see how the Bible fits together. So when we think dispensationalism, it's a way of, of piecing the Bible together from beginning to end. Um, I cannot remember the specific, the every specific dispensation, but they see the Bible broken up into seven dispensations. Um, you've got the first one, which is in Genesis. It's like the dispensation of innocence. Um, then after the after sin, you've got like the dispensation conscience. of like human conscience or government, something like that. And then um, you've got like with the patriarchs and you've got you've got the Mosaic dispensation. And in each one of these, God has a program for mankind that uh, man ultimately fails in. And so that program ends and a new one starts. They see um, the the church, the time of the church, as the dispensation of grace, um, because um, because Israel failed to acknowledge Jesus as her Messiah. We are in a new period in which mankind responds to God in a new way, um, you know, through the gospel in the church. But that period is destined to fail, just like all the others did. And so, at the end, that dispensation comes to an end, and then we have the dispensation of the kingdom, which is the thousand years and all of that. And so that plays into this framework as well. Um, what God, the, the dispensation that we're in now is is kind of like a parenthetical one, um, not, not necessarily so, but because Israel rejected Jesus, well, we've got this gap period before 
he restarts that plan, like I said earlier, and that's another dispensation um, that is yet to come. Um, coven, more covenantal theology, which is where we're not exactly like historic, like in the Presbyterian church, they see more um, history guarded or guided by a, a covenant of works in the garden that Adam and Eve broke. Um, and so God instituted what's called a covenant of grace in order to bring salvation, the covenant of grace that, that is fulfilled ultimately in the new covenant in Christ. And so all the other covenants are different ways that that covenant of grace is expressed, they say. Um, and so it's, there's two kind of main ways of seeing how the Bible fits together. We're not 100% on board with, with historic covenant theology. I don't know if I'm comfortable saying covenant of grace, um, but there is a plan of grace um, and stuff like that. And so we don't have time to get into all those distinctions, but that's kind of what leads into some of this as well, just in terms of a framework. We don't have, like I said, we, that, that would completely derail where we're going with some of this, but dispensationalism at heart is a way of framing the Bible according to seven dispensations. If there's, there's a newer one, progressive, which sees four instead of seven, but it's still God has a certain program that comes to an end, and then there's an, another way man is responsible to relate to God, and, and there's seven. Just jumping in there, okay, not to just, I know this is, this is like a lot of stuff coming at all of us right now, but classic dispensationalism is what Darby and Schofield taught around the you know, mm -hmm. 1800s. Vir virtually no one is a classical dispensationalist today. I mean, I'm sure you can find somebody, but there's almost no classic dispensationalist. They have two kinds now, one called revised dispensationalism, which might be closer to MacArthur, and then there's also progressive dispensationalism, which is what Dallas Theological Seminary teaches. They are both a much softer version of dispensationalism. Yeah. So why John MacArthur jokingly calls himself a leaky dispensationalist, because he doesn't hold to the classic dispensationalism of, of, of Schofield. Classic is pretty crazy. I mean, it's pretty mm -hmm. out there. Most people have abandoned classical, and they've taken a slightly more moderated view whether it's called revised or progressive dispensationalism today. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. Um, uh, you mentioned Darby in the, in the 19th century. Uh, the 19th century spawned a lot of offshoots, not just, not just Darby. You had uh, everybody in the 19th century, people were looking for Christ's return again. There was a guy named Miller. He was a Baptist pastor in the 1830s, 40s, something like that. He proclaimed that Christ was going to return on such and such a date. He had a follower, following, convinced everybody to sell everything they owned and be on top of a hill on a certain date. Well, it didn't happen. Well, he said, well, I got to go back and recalculate my numbers and, and gave a different date. And they did the same thing. And, of course, he didn't return then. Uh, that's the, the Millerite. Uh, that's a real thing. Out of that, though, came um, Adventist. Uh, the Shakers, the Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Latter-day Saints, all these were 19th century mm -hmm. phenomenons predicting some different or some aberrant return of Christ. So, Why scripturally do we believe what we Well, believe? that's about to say, let's go. Yeah. Um, so do we want to just go to the New Testament first? Um, or can we look at something in Jeremiah real quick? Yeah, we can start in Jeremiah. All right, Jeremiah chapter 31, guys. Um, this is a, might not be the first place you think about to deal with, um, with this issue. But again, it comes down to the, is there a difference in plan for Israel and the church? Um, if there is, then pre-tribulational rapture holds. If there's not, if God's plan for Israel is, as Mark said, fulfilled in Christ, secondarily through Christ to the church, um, then 
um, then the pre-tribulation is not what we need to think and probably more of the post-tribulational view, Jesus coming back at the end. So this is the classic New Covenant text, okay? Um, this is one, you know, as a, as a good Baptist, um, I think the believer's baptism or regenerate church membership is grounded not just New Testament, but also Old Testament, like in terms of looking forward to the New Covenant era. Um, so this is a text to go to for that. But I think there's some things here um, in terms of this current discussion. Um, at least, again, Old Testament pointing forward to the New um, helps us. You know, we talked about when we come to the New Testament, we already have conclusions in place. And so we have expectations. This is one that I am very convinced leads to an expectation that the church will be here through the tribulation because the church, because of its link to Christ, is new covenant um, uh, Israel um, and so on and so forth, which again, there's so much more we could say on that. But let's read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so we'll just stop there. Um, again, Hebrews 8 quotes this, spends a lot of times talking about the new covenant in terms of our current experience, the current age. But what is interesting about this um, is when he talks about the difference between this new covenant and the old covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. Um, that old covenant was something that was external to the people, written on a tablet of stone. Um, it showed them what they should do, but it had no power to change their heart and empower them to do it. Um, it, it, was, it was ineffective in that way. It couldn't produce what it commanded. The new covenant is radically different. Um, because in this instance, the law of God, the truth of God is not on something external to the people of God. It is written on their very hearts. It, it, it's written into the very fiber of who they are, such that when this law is written on your heart, you believe, you follow God, you obey the law. There's other texts where uh, Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to put my spirit within you and he's going to cause you to walk in my ways, cause you to do these things. Um, and so this writing of the law of God on the heart is what sets apart the new covenant community. If God's law is written on your heart, you belong to this community. If God's law is not written on your heart, this is also equivalent to the new birth, it's, you're not a part of this community. And that's the new divide. So when this new covenant is put into effect, however it's put into effect, or whenever that is, um, Israel will be redefined by this new covenant. Um, it doesn't matter your ethnicity doesn't matter your background. You are only Israel if this new covenant is written on your heart, if God's law is written on your heart. And so the new covenant is the means by which, um, by which Israel will be um, defined as Israel. It will no longer be Mosaic covenant, but the new covenant. Okay, that's huge going into the New Testament um, because if you receive this new covenant work of the law being written on your heart, 
then you're in the people of God. And, and, th- and you're in, I, I don't, oh, go, go ahead, Bob, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. No, no, no. <clears throat> this new covenant was given to the church by Jesus at the Last Supper. Yeah. Consummated by his death that afternoon. And th- this is, it's exactly right. And with, with what y'all are saying, mm-hmm. this is, and I, 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 believe me, I can't understand, I don't remember sermons I heard five minutes ago, much less a year ago. But, but as we've been going through Acts, one of the things that, that I've talked about, you've talked about too, Greg, one of the things I've been trying to talk about how is the reason they were so shocked in Acts 10 when a Gentile Cornelius is converted and he, he is filled with the Spirit before he has been circumcised. Why was that shocking? Because this is a covenant given to Israel. And this guy's not part of Israel. And he doesn't convert to Israel. He doesn't get the sign of being an Israelite, the circumcision sign. He doesn't get that. But he gets the spirit, the sign of the new covenant, being part of the new covenant people of God. He gets that without being an ethnic Jew. That's why it is so shocking. That's why Peter goes, I don't even know what to do with this. Categorically, it does not make sense. If you want to be part of the Israel covenant, what do you got to do? If you're a Gentile, you got to become an Israelite. But this guy became a true member of the people of God, God filling him with the spirit without him converting to Judaism. That means the people of God is being redefined around Jesus. Mm-hmm. You see that? You, what determines whether or not you're part of God's true people is not ethnicity. It's not Israel or Gentile. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all one in Christ and we are heirs of the promises what offspring of Abraham. So I think the, the number of sermons I've given over the last year, I've been trying to make this point very as strongly as I know how, which is that Acts is presenting the new people of God is defined around your relationship with Jesus, not the Mosaic law. It's around Jesus, not circumcision. It's around Jesus, not ethnicity. And if you are in Christ, then you are heirs of the promises made to the renewal of Israel. You are part of the renewal of Israel. That's why I argued in Galatians, he ends by saying, peace be upon all who hear this, who who obey this message, the Israel of God. I believe he's arguing there that that the true Israel of God is the true people of God. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, we are God's covenant people in Christ. Yes. Um, And again, all of this is going to play into how we understand the pre-trib rapture or not, um, because who the people of God are is going to define that issue. Um, one other place I want to go uh, before we get to like uh, Matthew 24 um, is Galatians uh, chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And again, guys, we're, there's a lot of other texts we could look at that we simply don't have time to, um, that I wish we could to establish this even more Um but Galatians um, chapter 3, let me make sure I've got my, my place right in the notes here. Um, Galatians chapter 3. No, it's not going to be. I'm looking at chapter 4. That's why it looked weird. Um, all right, Galatians chapter 3, let's begin reading verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises, note this promises plural, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Okay? So this is all that God promised. Every bit of it, every single thing God promised to Abraham is included in this promises right there, okay? And this that's significant. Everything God promised to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Um, so Christ is the ultimate heir of God's, all of God's promises to Abraham. Every single thing God promised to Abraham terminates on Christ. 
Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Um, move down just a little bit to, um, to verse uh, 25. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you all are, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the kicker. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Think true Israel there. True Israel. True Israel. Heirs according to promise. So if you're in Christ, you are now a recipient of all of God's promises to Abraham. That's referring to the Christian. Um, and so again, if that's the case, and I think it is, then we can't expect some subset of promises outside of these to go to Israel apart from us now. Every promise that God made to his people in the Old Testament terminates on Christ and we enter into the enjoyment of those when we are believers in Christ. And so I think if, if we can have somewhat of that as our, our mindset coming into the issue of the rapture and you know the timing around the second coming of Christ, I think we're in a better position to understand the text that we're going to look at. So you want to match? Just, you, I'll just say ahead. one more thing. I, uh, for whatever this is worth, uh, one of one of MacArthur's guys, who's a, who's a really great young preacher, he's probably close to my age. Mike Riccardi is his name, and you may have heard him before. I like Mike Riccardi a lot, but he he wrote a paper, I think, a pretty high level scholarly paper, trying to argue against what you just said on this text. No. And so I read it twice, and it's a long read. I read I read it twice over the course of a few months, and. Um, just the short summary is he tries to argue that not all the promises are given to God's people in Christ. He tries to argue that it's a selective set of promises. And I'm telling you, with, from my conscience, as honest as I can tell you, his argument did not convince me. I do not think his argument was convincing. I could, I could talk about why in another time, but I, I, I think I can give good grammatical reasons why. I think this is a reference to all the promises to Abraham and his offspring, not to just one or two or three or four. I think it's referring to the promises to Israel given to God's people in Christ. And so if we understand that God's people are one, there's one plan that's going to come to fulfillment at the return of Christ. There's not a, a plan to remove the church and then seven years and then second coming. If we see post-tribulation at the end of, end of history, the end of the ages, Jesus comes back. Let's take that mindset into, you want to Matthew 24 first. Yeah. Um, and I think we... we we're going to be short on time, but we'll do something really quick in Matthew 24. Okay, very, very briefly, if you can turn to Matthew 24. Th this is a very challenging passage. We're just looking at a very short part. I'm not going to walk through much of this at all right now. As you're turning there, let me just say one more thing to, to think about this. Um, again, I, I want to be respectful as I possibly can be as I say this. Remember I mentioned John Nelson Darby... Remember what decade? 1830s 30. was the first time he popularized this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. Why was it that virtually no one, if not literally no one, taught this before 1830? And the answer is because dispensationalism, this whole thing that we're talking about, about Israel and the church being very separated things, that idea was not taught in church history until John Nelson Darby in the 1830s. In other words, the, the Puritans didn't talk about this view because it didn't exist when they wrote in the 1600s. Jonathan Edwards never addressed dispensationalism because no one had ever taught it before in the 1730s and 40s during the Great Awakening. 
George Whitfield never addresses it because no one had addressed it. No one ever talked about it when, in the 1750s. Uh, the Wesley brothers never discussed it because it wasn't around when they were writing. You, can, you look at Matthew Henry's commentary, he doesn't refer to it at all because in the 1690s it didn't exist. And Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, the reformers, never talk about it. Why? Because it had not been popularized. It wasn't around in the 1500s. And you can go back into the medieval and Augustine and on and on. It's not addressed. Why? It had not been promoted. It wasn't there in church history. So John Nelson Darby gets this revelation of the division between Christ and the church. That division then forces your hand on pre-tribulation rapture because you have to get the church out of the world for the plan of Israel to take up with the church gone. You, you have to. So pre-trib rapture was, a, was, was something that came out of another belief, a theological belief that was not held really before 1830. So again, that doesn't disprove it, right? You, you, uh, frankly, Baptist theology as we know it is also kind of a late development. They were baptizing babies a lot in the Middle Ages. So you could argue, you know, the reformers in the 15, 1500s, just because it, it shows up late doesn't mean it's wrong. Well, I would argue though in response that... Uh, people did believe justification by faith in the early church. I, you can find early church fathers who did teach that. It wasn't the first time it showed up with Luther, but Luther rediscovered it. But with, with, with dispensationalism, it is not there to be rediscovered. It is actually promoted, I think, for the first time, clearly, by John Nelson Darby in the 1830s. So Matthew 24, just real quick. We don't have time to talk about this much at all. Just look at verse, um, look, look at verse uh, 27 of Matthew 24. We're just looking for the return of Christ in relationship to the tribulation. Is it before or after? And everyone agrees on this text, I think. Verse 20, what did I say? 27. Mm. Seven. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately, look at the words, after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds uh, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, thankfully there's no debate on this. Well, there is still one, but we won't talk about that. Most people agree that this text is clearly describing the final return of Christ, and it happens when in relationship to the tribulation? Post. After. It, so whatever view you take, that return of Christ, this one where he gathers his elect from the four winds, and there's also a trumpet call in here somewhere. Do I read that part? Mm -hmm. The trumpet sounds, the angels come, Jesus returns, the elect are gathered together to meet Jesus, and that happens immediately after the tribulation. So this return of Christ is a post-tribulation return. Everybody, I, I don't think that's hard. That, that's easy, right? Okay, now let's get a little more complicated. Turn to your right to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And th this is, as, as you guys mentioned earlier, this is the classic rapture text. The, the only time the word rapture appears is actually the Latin translation of this word caught up. I think it's rapio or something. It's the word for rapture. And uh, it, it comes straight out. So we do believe in a rapture. Okay? The word is in the text. We're caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds. But the question is, what, what's going on around that event? What, what, what happens after that event, before that event? Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, believers who have already died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, believers who've died in the Lord. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Does that sound similar to Matthew 24? I there's archangel, so. there's a trumpet, there's people coming, the elect are being gathered. Okay, keep going. With, uh, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Caught up is where we get the word rapture, okay? Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, now real quick here. Um, the text does not say where we go once we meet the Lord. And that's the million dollar question, right? Like, so we, we, we're, we, we, if we're still alive when Jesus returns, we will be immediately resurrected. Dead saints will rise just before us, then we will rise. We will meet the Lord in the air, right? And we will always be with the Lord. But it doesn't say if we go back to heaven or if we come back to earth. It doesn't say. The text just leaves it blank on that. It doesn't say what happens next. So let me give you an argument. I cannot believe what time it is right now. It's unbelievable. Uh, So let me give you, there's a lot more to say, but let me give you one one argument here about why I want to think that we actually return to earth after the rapture rather than go to heaven. Now that may sound blasphemous if you've ever grown up. You're like, no, no, no. We go to heaven. That's the whole point. We disappear. But I want to give you, uh, there's several reasons. Number one would be this. First of all, the return described here matches the details. I actually have a list here on one of these pages. If you could, I won't read them, but if you see the purple line here, there are at least 10 different ways in which the return of Christ in Matthew 24 matches the details of the return in 1 Thessalonians. Now, that makes me think it's what? The same return. And if it's the same return, it happens what? In relationship to the tribulation. After. And if it happens after the tribulation, then there's no reason to go to heaven for seven years because the tribulation's already over. So there are 10 details, at least, mentioned here by Doug Moo, that, that match the details in Matthew 24 that everyone agrees Matthew 24 is after the tribulation, the return of Christ. After the tribulation, he comes back. First Thessalonians 4 and 5, there are 10 details that match. Angels are accompanying, the sound of the trumpet, the elector gathered, on and on and on. 10 details. That sounds like unnecessarily, unnecessarily complicating things to say these are two separate events, right? One after a tribulation, one before. They have 10 identical details. It sounds like it's one event. Now, if it's one event, then, we've, then, then, the, then the most important text for pre-tribulation rapture has just fallen, okay? Because it's post-tribulation. But let me give you another argument here. It says we will go to meet the Lord in the air in verse 17. We will meet the Lord in the air. Okay, Uh, we don't have time to turn there. I will just quickly uh, mention this. You can look it up uh, on your own time. The word apentasis is the Greek word meet, apentasis. Okay, the word is only used a couple times in the whole New Testament. Now just follow me on this real quick. I won't turn there. In Acts 28, when Paul finally makes it to Rome, remember we're waiting for Paul to get to Rome. Paul, you ever going to get there? So finally he gets to Rome. And we're told that there's two cities, three taverns and some other place that that are about 60 miles uh, closer to Paul than Rome. And what we're told is when Paul was coming to the Roman church, the Roman Christians find out Paul's finally here. We've been waiting for years. And what do they do? It says they went as far as the three taverns in this other city to Apentasis to meet him. And what do they do? Once they met Paul, there's a welcoming committee. What do they do? They go with Paul back to where he came from? No, they turn around and they welcome Paul into their home. That's what apentasis means. It, it's, it's a welcoming party. You're, you're, you're a good host. Your guest is coming to meet you. You come out of your house to apentasis, meet them, and then you turn around and go right back into your house. It's a welcoming party. I think that's, now let me give the other example. This one's even stronger, I think. Matthew 25, which is right after Matthew 24, it's talking about the return of Christ. 
The same word is used when Jesus talks about the ten, ten virgins trimming their wicks, remember? The, the, the bridal party welcoming the, the, the groom. This is clearly a reference to Christ's return, right? And we're told that the, the groom will be delayed. He may be delayed, so Jesus may be a while. And this is what this is amazing to me. The brides go out to, guess what? Appentasis, the groom. And what do they do? They don't follow the groom back to where he came from. They turn around and welcome him back into the house that they're bringing the groom into. It's a welcoming committee. That word is used in Greek literature to refer to a Roman military leader. After winning a great battle, they would send their notaries, their, 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 their good newsers, right, would show up, their evangelists. They would show up and say, hey, the Roman military leader has conquered. He beat the whoever's and he's coming back, okay? And he's camping just outside the city. He will be here tomorrow. So what does everybody do? They get ready and the Greek would say in the secular literature, the people of the city go out with even their slaves and servants and their families and their children. They would go out to appentasis the leader. Why? To go with him back to the battlefield? No, to return and welcome him back into the home. That's the word here that is being used for the rapture text. So Jesus descends using the language of Matthew 24, which is after the tribulation, right? He comes down from heaven. All the dead saints and living saints are resurrected. We meet the Lord in the air. We appentasis the Lord in the air. And what do we do? We turn right around to welcome him. Now we are coming in the white robes, coming with him, with part of really his army, with the angels as well, coming back for his judgment on the world. He's rescuing his people. We appentasis him in the sky. We welcome him as a welcoming party. He comes back to judge the world in righteousness. The tribulation is already finished at this moment. The tribulation is over. We as saints have lived through the tribulation. Jesus comes back to judge the world. And then whether or not there will be a thousand year millennial reign is another debate for uh, another day. But, but that would be the beginning of a few, there's a lot more, but those are the first couple of arguments for a post-tribulation single return of Christ. The rapture, we go up to meet him, but then we appentasis, we meet him, we, we come right back. It's a welcoming party. It is not, we're not escaping to go to heaven for seven years. A lot to look forward to either way, no matter what. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, very exciting. Papa, would you please thank the Lord for those good days coming? Uh, yes, Jerry. Thank you. Uh, I, I know we're short on time, but I've got to read this. This is a book by... Um, Trent Hunter and Stephen Wellham, Christ from the beginning to the end. And he says, a marriage supper, a city without a son, a book of life. The one thing each of us has in common is this lamb. Eternity goes in one of two directions, depending on our relationship to the lamb. What is a lamb doing in the vision of John's? We know the answer, a lamb. The lamb is the answer to Scripture's great question, how can sinners be made right with a holy God? That's the Job 9-2 verse. This lamb is our salvation, and forever he will be our song. In this new creation, we will be happy in Christ, and he will forever be happy in us. As a bride is happy in her groom, so we shall be happy in him. And as a groom rejoices over his bride, so our triune Lord will rejoice over us. There has never been any competition in his heart for us. And in this consummated age, there won't be any competition in ours. Finally, our joy in him will be truly pure joy and the satisfaction because of the glorious work of the Lamb. How long we wait for that day, how we wait for that day. As a bride waits for her groom, so we wait for Christ's return. And as we do, we cling to his parting words with the great hope, look, I'm coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Amen.